0: Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shivaglani, and today I'm really happy to welcome a good friend of mine, Dr. Robert Lord, uh, who recently completed his medical degree at Johns Hopkins, capping an amazing decade of accomplishment as a venture capitalist and entrepreneur. He's currently a partner at Lionbird, where he supports digital health startups, and prior to that, he co-founded Protenus, which provides healthcare organizations with risk reduction solutions. Robert's insights have been featured in Forbes, the Baltimore Sun, and many national conferences, and he has briefed the U.S. Senate on cybersecurity threats to our nation's healthcare systems. So, Robert, it's good to see you on. Thanks for taking the time.
1: Oh, thank you for having me. It's, it's such an honor and a delight both to have a conversation with you as well as to be a part of this program today.
0: Yeah, we've been through a, a lot together. I know uh, almost a decade ago we met at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, but I, I obviously know quite a bit about you and your background. But maybe you can, for our audience, give a give them a sense of what got you interested in the career in healthcare because you had a very non-traditional background going into 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 med school.
1: Yeah, so you know, I was not your typical pre-med uh, at Harvard. I studied basically political philosophy, we called it social studies, and then I uh, went on to work at a hedge fund, Bridgewater Associates, for a few years, um, which was a terrific experience, but also I think gave me a lot of insight into how I how I wanted to spend the rest of my career. And I think I really needed something with more mission and more uh, something that felt more tangibly hands-on in service. And so when I thought about the different options that uh, were out there, medicine really came up as something that I thought would be quite interesting, but I had no experience in medicine. And so I, I took a bit of a leap of faith. I, I did a post program, which basically like lets you take a whole bunch of pre-med classes in a highly condensed, uh, extremely unpleasant year of science classes. And, uh, and then I went to med school at Hopkins. And you know, once you once I really started working with patients, uh, I think the remarkable thing for me, and the thing that you know I feel very blessed about that, is that uh, this very intellectual decision to say, well, you know, medicine seems like this great service oriented type of, of field, and also you know I wanted to take the quantitative background that I, I had from Bridgewater to apply it to what I thought would be very interesting problems in healthcare. But you know, that that kind of intellectual decision became one that, that just felt so so joyous and viscerally fulfilling when you started working with patients. I mean that was the magical thing for me. Uh, and it was it was very gratifying to have that leap of faith be rewarded. Uh, so that was kind of how I initially got into medicine. I'm happy to go into the well what happened. I didn't quite get to finish med school at that time. Um, but little life life got in the way a little bit.
0: Yeah we're definitely going to get get into that. But um before before we go into what you did once you started med school even before, I mean, so Bridgewater is really well-known around the world, uh, largely because their, their founder, Ray Dalio, has written a number of pretty great books, principles, and most recently, uh, principles of a changing world order, why our nations Succeed yeah. and fail. So you mentioned it gave you a really good quantitative background, really honed your quantitative skills, which, which obviously helped in, in later career and what you did with Portennis, I'm sure with Lionbird. You know, Bridgewater is also well-known for kind of how direct their approach is and how they, how they build <laughs> teams up. I'm curious, what other things have you learned from that time at Bridgewater that maybe have helped you um, or, or even hurt you at, in the healthcare system?
1: Yeah, it's too bad our, our podcast listeners today can't see the grin on my face, but yes, exactly. You know, Bridgewater is a really neat place, and I felt tremendously privileged to work there you know while ultimately finance wasn't my personal mission that's just not kind of where I wanted to spend the rest of my career the colleagues that I had there and the things that I learned there were, were tremendously valuable as you alluded to I, I use them you know every day you know I think the the big thing to your question that that I took away and that I tremendously valued for my time and I was fortunate to actually get to work with Ray pretty frequently um and he was you know great uh, great teacher in many ways, and, and just observing him is its own lesson in many ways as well, is that that element of radical transparency that Bridgewater is so famous for, I would say that element of Both really being honest with your colleagues in such a way that you're pushing them to constantly improve and also being really honest with yourself about your weaknesses and how you need to get better and also your strengths and how you can augment them. I mean, that core lesson, I think, built the foundation of so much of the rest of my career and my leadership philosophy um, and how I like to both constantly interrogate myself and how I can do better and how I can get more aligned to the missions that I have in my life and what's important to me. And then also how I can, I can help others achieve their goals and, and kind of coach them or assist them or mentor them or sometimes manage up uh, and, and help you know, help them achieve something that, that's more true to who, who they want to be. So I think that, that element of radical transparency um, is, is what was really fundamentally valuable
0: for me totally that That sounds obviously very useful both as a, as a clinician working in a team, leading a team, um, or just being part of a team all the way to you know being a startup founder, which we'll get into now. So you know, there was a pretty interesting time period at Hopkins Med where for four years in a row, two Hopkins Med students took time off. To start companies. So we had, you know, Craig and David, who were two years above me, uh, they took time off, did Blueprint Health in New York to start SimCat. And then both of them actually went back and finished finished residency, uh, are still involved in digital health. The next year it was Ralph and Mike, uh, as well as Henry from my class, who took time off, did Rock Health to start Reify Health, which has done tremendously, right. tremendously well. Uh, then it was me and Ryan, we took time off, did Dream and Health in Philly to do Osmosis. Obviously, that's been uh, our, our audience is very familiar with osmosis. And then it was you and Nick uh, taking time off to do Dream of Health Baltimore to start ProTennis. So uh, I don't know what was in the water at Hopkins those days, but <laughs> how we got to know each other pretty well. Um, you've come a long way and we've been very proud to see the progress you and Nick made with ProTennis. But for our audience that doesn't really know much about uh, ProTennis or, or cybersecurity in healthcare, can you Tell us about the origin stories as well as kind of what the last decade or so has, has yielded for ProTennis.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, a topic I, I enjoy talking about. Um, so my my good friend and co-founder, Nick Culbertson, and I were both in medical school at the same class, a year below you, I think, Chip, at the time. And we were doing this research project, essentially looking at electronic health records. And long story short, what we began to realize in what originally was more of an academic research project was that health systems had enormous risks from a legal compliance and safety perspective across their, their very large systems. You know, there were so many things happening in electronic systems in physical systems. And to give you some examples, Some of the things that we tackle at Pretentis are things like HIPAA violations. So people looking at records, they shouldn't be looking at celebrities or coworkers, which sadly is is very, what used to be very easy in the electronic health record. Um, And obviously that's terrible violations of patient privacy and dignity, as well as challenges like, um, as we're facing in America, the scourge of uh, opioid addiction. So do we see that inside hospitals with the problem of drug diversion as well. So people are using the automated, almost vending uh, machine style units that we have for dispensing drugs. Um, and they're often you know, taking drugs that they shouldn't for either personal use or, or resale. And so these are just two of the examples of the types of problems that pretenders tackles, but they're just two of many, many risks that exist. And what we realized was that Hospitals were so overburdened with trying to tackle these risks. They could really only address the the tip of the iceberg. You know, they could maybe do some random audits. They could respond to complaints. But there were still, you know, millions and millions and millions of activities, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of activities that were occurring that they had no way to know if they were appropriate or inappropriate. You know, maybe, maybe they were fine. Maybe they weren't. But there was no way because there was so much manual labor involved in these investigations. And so what we, we realized is, advances in artificial intelligence had enabled systems, uh, obviously not in this space yet, but w- what we thought was possible, to look at every single one of those individual transactions, say, is this appropriate or in a you know is this appropriate or inappropriate in a in a clinical context an administrative context? Does it make sense that this person is pulling these drugs out from this drug dispensing machine? Does it make sense that this person is looking at this? record um, of someone who may or may not, you know, have the same last name or something complicated with, that might suggest they're a family member, it might just be a coincidence, you know, it's very hard to, it's very hard to tell. And while people initially thought that it was kind of an impossible task because of the complexity and scale, what we quickly found was, in fact, we could build a new gold standard for what's now called healthcare compliance analytics. Um, and I'm, I'm proud to say that, you know, Pretentis is the, the gold standard for healthcare compliance analytics in this country now. We're Very large. I'm I'm not sure what what I'm allowed to say on that at the moment, but a very uh, significant proportion of United States health systems. Uh, We serve um, hundreds and I think, I believe now, in the the four digits of hospitals uh, across the country. So very, very large number on that front. And uh, we're out there. I'm excited to say really protecting patient dignity, protecting patient safety, and importantly helping hospitals systematically reduce their risks um, and ultimately, you know, help translate that to improvements for patients, improvements for safety, and improvements to their bottom line as well.
0: Yeah, it's incredible. Incredible to scale uh, in just a short amount of time that you guys have achieved. And uh, I'm sure there's, you know, up the hundreds or thousands of health systems you've reached, that's millions or tens of millions of patient lives you've you've helped, among other applications. So, you know, at a certain point, you know, both you and I, we've discussed this too, because we were taking leave for medical school as we were running these companies. Uh, you actually went back and finished and just graduated. And now you're in emergency medicine residency at Hopkins. Can you talk to us a bit about kind of that decision process and how how you decided to go back, Nick decided to stay on ProTennis, um, and then somewhere along the way, you picked up Lionbird Ventures. So maybe talking a bit, transitioning into how that came into, into play.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, you know, ultimately uh, I, I was fortunate to have an experience that, you know, many, many founders dream of, which is ultimately, you know, you help build something that um, that you don't need to be there every day for, for it still to be successful. So you, you've helped, you know, build this machine alongside our terrific team at ProTennis. That now it operates um, with just a great team of leaders that you know Nick and I were really proud to have on board, train and, and work with and lead over the years. Um, and I'm also very lucky to have a co-founder who was a you know a, an able an able leader who when I when I left I knew I could I could trust the the company in his hands and I, I was very comfortable with that. And so not every entrepreneur kind of has this perfect confluence of events on that front, but you know those were sort of the facilitating mechanisms. Those have to be true because of course as a founder I have an obligation to make sure that I take care of my team and I take care of our mission and customers, that's gonna come first. But because those things were true, I also had this real passion to, to go back and pursue clinical medicine. I began to realize that while I of course love pretendists, I love the work, I love the mission, I love the customers that we serve, I did still miss uh, the laying on of hands that comes with medicine. There's something really unique to being one-on-one with a patient at a, you know one of their darkest hours perhaps and helping support them and i also felt that you know we're at this very interesting inflection point in healthcare right now where the healthcare system is is basically at its point of of absolute break i think uh, but simultaneously we're seeing advances from a technological systems payments perspective that I think have the potential to finally bend the curve of some of these problems now I'm an eternal optimist i of course know i've i've been i have the cynicism of any entrepreneur who sold the enterprise healthcare systems on how our incentives are rather badly mangled in our healthcare system so i have no illusions about that but but i'm an optimist in that i i do think that change is possible and i think that that change is going to come from people who both have the knowledge of how to build entities that scale in the private sector and in other contexts as well, and who also understand what it is to have responsibility for a patient's care, for a patient's life, for that setting of of really one-on-one interaction that sometimes we don't understand on the pure business side. You know, that's just the reality, as do, you know, does the clinical side not necessarily understand some of the business reality. So I think that, um, I knew i wanted to spend my the rest of my career in healthcare you know that's something that's very clear to me and if i was going to continue to do that um i wanted to make sure that i never i both got back to the actual practice of clinical medicine and completed my training as well as had the ability to maintain a longitudinal practice within healthcare because i think if if you're not continuously maintaining that perspective if you're not really you know though though we use this analogy in, you know in entrepreneurship frequently it's it's obviously a little less applicable in healthcare but kind of eating your own dog food with relation to the technologies that you're using every day and with regard to the, you know medical records and analytic systems and devices and all of that then then I think it's hard to, to really uh, to really fully be able to, to fix some of those problems now obviously there's a lot of great entrepreneurs who are fixing all sorts of different problems and they've never spent a day uh, in a hospital outside of their own personal uh, medical needs. And there's a lot of great clinicians who are doing systemic change um, with absolutely no entrepreneurial knowledge whatsoever. But for me, at least, I I thought that this was a particularly perhaps useful intersection of my strengths and the things that I enjoyed. And and that's how I wanted to spend the rest of my career.
0: Yeah, that's really inspiring and pretty unique because, you know, again, you and I run in similar circles. We know a lot (laughs) of people who at various uh, times pursued clinical training and some have fully dropped out, some have finished all of their training and it became, uh, physicians, and then eventually became entrepreneurs. After all of that, so, yeah. um but it is rare to you know this is a much less you know, common path. I think partially because uh, not all schools are as flexible as Hopkins has been for people like you and me in terms of letting us defer to to keep working on our companies. Right, like absolutely friend, one of our friends at uh, 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 entrepreneur Sean Duffy at Omada Health uh, yeah. at Harvard Med, they only let him take one year off before they said you either have to come back and finish. Or you have to drop out, whereas Hopkins did not give us kind of that ultimatum.
1: Yeah, you know, as much as I love my my alma mater from a college perspective, I have to say that I, I do think that a policy that penalizes individuals who want to go and take some time to do real systemic change in medicine, medicine through private sector endeavors or otherwise, I think that is somewhat short-sighted. I, I hope that institutions do have the foresight that I think Hopkins really does, and, and I'm inspired by... Uh, you know the leadership at the at the institution that was uh, able to do this. I think those are the institutions that are going to be able to capture more of the the future of healthcare. So um, I, I I have heard that I think there's a little bit more movement towards this. People are understanding the value of it. But yeah, I mean, a decade ago it was it was really really weird, and and only in the last few years have I seen I think more and more people, particularly on the East Coast. I think there is also some regional variation as well.
0: Yeah, no, totally. So not only did you go back and finish med school, but you were also a partner at a, a digital VC at the same time. So Lionberg, can you talk to us a bit about that and like how you were managed to be a VC while being a med student at the same time? Yes. Yeah.
1: That. So um for a little bit of background, so Lionbird is an early stage digital health VC focusing essentially on elements of healthcare that can range from the back office of compliance, billing, uh, all those things, to uh, front-end clinical devices that are ultimately connected to, to software on the other side of things. So really runs the gamut of everything I say except you know surgical screws. Um, we do a lot of really, I, I, I think, exciting stuff. But I originally met the principals at Lionbird. Um, because Lionbird was an early investor in ProTennis, so we had the opportunity to work together. Um, we'd been on the board together. Obviously, I was chair. I, I'm chair of the board, and so I, I would work with uh, Ed Michael, one of my fellow partners, all the time. Um, and one of the things that I, I really saw in Lionbird was that they were always there for ProTennis, good or bad. Um, I just thought they were terrific advisors. I I like them as people, and I was really honored when you know I said I was uh, going to be headed back to medical school. Um, that they very kindly said, "Hey, you know, we don't know what your capacity is going to be like in medical school, but we would love to bring you on um, as a, as a partner um, if you were interested." And I was extremely flattered. It was a firm I admired a lot, and we made it work. Bottom line is, yeah, there t- you you got to flex a little bit. Sometimes you're in the ICU for 28 hours at a time, and uh, you can't necessarily take as many um, pitch calls. But uh, actually, it works out pretty well. You can kind of figure it out if you're doing shifts and things like that. Uh, obviously, I couldn't be 100 percent time on that front, but we, I think, had a, quite a fruitful relationship. Um, we, and we continue to have a fruitful relationship. And uh, we made I, I, led, I led a few investments on that front. I sat on a couple of boards on behalf of Lionbird, and, and we continue to invest out of our, out of our third fund, um, which has so far just just been a really terrific experience.
0: That's fantastic. And do you mind talking to us a bit about some of the companies and problems you're most excited about solving? Um, you know, a lot has changed, obviously, in the last two years relative to where when you and I were med student, well, when you and I first met really a decade ago, the last two years have accelerated a lot of trends that we talked about way back then, telehealth and uh, remote monitoring. But what, what gets you most excited about the next you know decade or so of health healthcare innovation?
1: Yeah, so I can certainly speak to the two companies. Now, of course, I love all Lionbird's portfolio equally. Uh, you know, we, we we love all of our children. But there's two companies I sit on the board of that obviously I'm very excited about, big fan of the, the founder of the team. So one company, Phrase Health, based out of Philadelphia, essentially helps solve the problem of um, what are the interventions that we place into the electronic health record that are valuable and improve patient outcomes so what that means you know anyone who's in healthcare knows that our um, if we're using epic or Cerner or any other ehR we're constantly getting these alerts that say you know make sure to start your sepsis timer or are you sure that these two medications don't have a bad interaction or you know like did you put on your pants this morning and you know are you gonna go walk out without them you know and they ran i say that because they range from extremely helpful and you're like oh i, I Definitely start that antibiotic to yes, computer. I, I put my pants on this morning, right? Like, and so what we need to do, I think, as as a field is understand which of these alerts are valuable and downstream, improve patient care, save costs, standard, you know, remove variation in healthcare, and which are just burdensome for the provider or potentially deleterious. And so phrase health has an extremely complex meta-analytic platform that nonetheless is extremely simple to use. And so basically it allows teams to do their own quality improvement projects to understand how they're they're bending the curve within their own hospitals and to understand how the alert-based interventions or reminders are ultimately creating value um, and improving care for the health system, which is very exciting. They're able to do some remarkable work, streamline it, package it, and make it simple for hospitals to do this. And this is particularly important now when we have challenges like the nursing shortage and rampant burnout among our clinicians, such the variations in care are increasing dramatically. Travel nurses are coming; they might not know the protocols. Very understandably, right? It's not a, the, the, it's not a fault of nursing. Um, but if you're moving from different hospitals all the time, how do you know which protocols to follow, which boxes to check, and all that? And then, just in general, we're we're strained beyond belief now in healthcare. Anyone who's um, on the wards uh, knows knows what it's like now in health systems. Uh, it's really, really, really tough. And Phrase helps take some of that burden off and and really improve patient outcomes. The other company that's just really terrific is a company uh, called Phantom, um, which is completely different insofar as it actually provides uh, what I like to think of as an API for the peripheral nervous system. It's a minimally invasive device that allows for um, connection to our peripheral nervous system and muscles such that we can use uh, extremely lifelike prosthetics with instead of really uh, burdensome kind of short-lived nerve based surgeries we can use them on a more ongoing basis with much less invasive surgeries and so we can enable people to have full complex uh, mechanical function of their limbs after amputation or perhaps uh, muscle de-innervation or a lot of other things and ultimately have that come uh, in a relatively straightforward kind of outpatient deliverable way instead of a highly complex neurosurgical or or uh, or plastic surgery kind of kind of uh, surgery that needs to be done. So those are just two terrific companies but also show you the breadth of what we invest in in Limper.
0: Um, and and I'm very excited about both of these. That's that is both of them sound fa- fascinating, and it'll be cool to watch that space. And maybe eventually we'll have them on the RaiseLine podcast as well. Oh, you too. should.
1: They're there, they're other founders are just terrific. They're terrific.
0: Awesome. Well, it's so cool that you can wear, you know, again, you have so many different hats. You're an entrepreneur yourself, obviously, still involved with ProTennis as chairman, investor. So you get to see all these other companies share your lessons and, and, you know, not have to be the main operator across these different companies and then obviously clinician. So turning back to clinician, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're we're recording this a month into residency, you chose emergency medicine. You know, what, how do you see this all playing out? Like, are you excited about uh, practice? I mean, emergency medicine is a field that gets a lot of people who can do predictable shift work so they can have these other things that they, other hats that they wear, you know, what would your ideal be knowing that, you know, in five years, 10 years, things could totally look different. Um, but right now, how are you envisioning the future?
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I was, I was just so honored to uh, to be accepted to the Johns Hopkins Emergency Residency Program. Obviously, they they took a risk on a very odd looking resume. I don't, I don't think there's too many candidates that uh, pop out as as this strange. You know, it was, it was, I'm I'm very thankful for Dr. Linda Regan uh, and the rest of the leadership team, like Gabe Kalman, our chair who were extremely supportive, continue to be extremely supportive, um, and, and kind of rolled the dice on a, on a weird, much older candidate. So, um, but, you know, when I think about how I want to focus this time, obviously, you know, I'll continue my longitudinal engagement with the companies that I work with, I'll, I'll continue that investment. But of course, um, you know, when you're treating patients, you, you got to keep your, you got to keep your patient care first as well. And so, you know, the next four years, um, I'll be focusing a lot on, on becoming the best doctor that I can be. Um, while of course, maintaining my, my other responsibilities, but I will say, you know, won't have, won't have too many hobbies. Let's put it that way. Cause between those two, yeah, that, that's a lot of, uh, that's a lot of work, but I think in the long run, you know, I'm trying, I, I know I'm trying to stay somewhat open as to the different ways that the problems can be solved. Obviously, um, investing with Lionbird is, is something that I think is really you know, is important to me and continues to be important to me. I think that the firm has enormous potential to continue to transform healthcare in a really unique and and special model in the way that we do that. And and I love working with the team as well. And then I want to make sure that, as I mentioned earlier, I continue to intersperse that longitudinal clinical work uh, as well. I think that, you know, emergency medicine is, is, particularly excellent from the perspective of the fact that we do shift work in emergency medicine. And so, you know, when you're on, you're on, when you're off, you're off. And so you have a bit more of a predictable schedule. Now, of course the cost of that is, you know, you might be working a bunch of overnights. You might not necessarily have the, the best hours in the world, but that predictability um, is probably the reason why if you look at entrepreneur, a lot of entrepreneurs and investors who are physicians, there's an outsized proportion of emergency physicians because essentially it's one of the only fields where you can really do that. I, I think effectively, But I think emergency medicine is also very exciting from the perspective of it is so much at the center of a lot of the core questions of what we're facing now with value-based care as well. Because essentially all of the flaws of the healthcare system become reflected in the emergency department, right? We've got bounce back because we're not longitudinally caring for our patients. They're coming to the emergency room. When we've got individuals who don't have primary care. Um, and they have an illness, they're coming to the emergency room. When we have massive staffing issues across the hospital and the whole hospital's backing up because we haven't, we haven't figured out our operational workflows, where's everyone going? Standing in the emergency room, right? And so you, you are right at the nexus of all these problems. But to me, the problems that our healthcare system faces are the are the fuel that shows me where the opportunities are too. And it's my passion, which which it really is, is how do we improve healthcare? How do we solve these big problems, one problem at a time and and tackle them? I, I don't think I want to be anywhere other than that.
0: That's awesome. That's really exciting. And again, I, we have a lot of friends who've gone into emergency medicine. We've had a lot of them on the podcast because as you said, it's, uh, it's, it's a field that's well-suited to wearing other hats. Um, Plus it's
1: just super cool. I mean,
0: emergency medicine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's I mean, for, for people who like risk and adrenaline, it's it's great, right? Um,
1: the entrepreneurial, uh, the entrepreneurial personality, I, I think, is is inevitably attracted to to the emergency medicine side. But also, you know, it's just a privilege to care for such a diverse patient population. People are coming from all walks of life, all sorts of situations, and to be there to support them in their hour of need is a is a really unique uh, and special honor honor and privilege too. I'd be remiss if I didn't note that as well.
0: Totally. No, for sure. Um, I know we're coming up in time. So I had two other questions for you. The first is, as you know, Osmosis is a teaching company and we carry on. I remember
1: using it as a med student.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, exactly. And so we we want to fill in knowledge gaps. And I'm curious, given all the things you've learned along the way, the fact that you're now back into practice, uh, if you could snap your fingers and teach, you know, the next generation of physicians, nurses, etc., something about healthcare, uh, what would it be and why?
1: You know, I was thinking about this um, the other day in a different context. And I think there, you know, if there was this like bite-sized morsel of something to be really valuable. Obviously, I'm not the guy who's going to have an intelligent commentary on some complicated biochemical reaction that should be taught. Um, But I think the thing that I find interesting is so much of healthcare actually does have parallels to the business world. And so far, as much of our job is to help align people to the course of treatment or the next steps that are in their best interest. But they might not for a variety of different reasons understand or accept or or want to be a part of for some reason, some of which are completely legitimate. Obviously, we respect patient autonomy. But sometimes it's just a matter of saying, hey, you know, you may think that you want this or you don't want this intervention, but let me explain how this is going to affect your life. You may not want to take this medication every day or pay for this or deal with this hassle, but think about what's going to happen 10 years from now if you don't. Or, you know, you this surgery I know sounds scary but if your goal is to be able to hold your grandchildren in 6 months and help take care of them with your family that's how you're going to get there and when and when you help, and sometimes the answer is you know what they they're 100% right we explored all that option um and and they they're you know they they should be doing exactly what they thought from day one. That's fine, like we're not there to impose our will on patients, but so much of this is extremely analogous to the complex sales process as well. how do you understand what people really need, what drives them, what their goals are, um how do you understand the problems that they face in their day to day and I think that almost a video on like how do we elicit the truth of someone's motivations, and how do we connect that back to their care, even in this really bite-sized way that I think draws on some sales principles, connects them to the realities of medicine, which are different, of course, than sales. Um, that might be a fun educational video. And I think it would be like a very high-yield five minutes as medical students and residents go on the wards and and really have the job
0: sometimes of being
1: salesmen of people's you know good health.
0: That's, really, that's a really good point. And I agree, there's a lot of parallels between just... You know, seeing everyone's a person, and everyone has motivations, and the better you can understand and empathize with those motivations, whether it's hiring a, a VP of sales, or selling a health system, or trying to convince a patient uh, to do or not do a certain course of action, that makes sense. It's persuasion, it's behavior change. Um, so, yeah, I'll, I'll take that back to the osmosis curriculum uh, room to see what we can do. Um, my last question is, you know. What advice would you give to this next generation of healthcare professionals about meeting their uh, the challenges of the post pandemic, hopefully post pandemic world? Um, and then finally, is there anything else that we haven't talked about that you wanted to, to bring up in this conversation?
1: So I guess you know the to your first question the 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 reality of you know what we've faced. There's no there's no sugarcoating how terrible you know the last few years have been. In so many ways, um, I wouldn't want to say any, anything other than that at some level, and it would be unfair to all my colleagues and mentors and friends who have gone through uh, what, what was really, really hellish. It was, it was really horrible, and there's not, not a lot of words that can quite articulate some of the despair and burnout that was created by a very complex set uh, of medical, social, political, legal issues that we saw but ever the ever the optimist i do like to think that you know in tragedy sometimes comes opportunity and i think that what we saw in the last couple of years is people did start to realize that there are a lot of things that are unsustainable and there are a lot of things that can help transform um, the future of medicine. People actually started to realize, oh, telehealth can make a big difference, right? That's the classic example. Now we're retrenching a little bit there, but I think we did see a lot more of that. We're starting to understand that healthcare workforces are just not going to put up with some of the behavior that I think they've been forced to put up with because it's, that's the way we've always done it. Um, I think systematically um, we are over, overtaxing and overstressing our healthcare workforce Uh, We're putting them in ethically challenging positions where they're just part of this grinding, misaligned set of healthcare incentives that they have to find the best possible outcome of a bunch of bad outcomes. I mean, any clinician who's listening, I'm sure knows uh, the types of things that I'm talking about, and I I won't go into too many examples, but fundamentally, sometimes it can feel like you are a cog in a heartless machine that nonetheless is supposed to be delivering patient care to people. And that's a terrible paradox to feel, I think, as a clinician, And so what we're seeing is, you know, technologies that actually could finally start to say, we're going to take all this busy work off your plate. Like, why are you doing all this extra documentation and clicking all these boxes, going through paper, sending a fax, which we still do all the time. Someone just recommended we send a fax. And it still happens, right? Uh, Or, you know, how are we, taking innovations um, that we have built, like you know, ever-expanding EHRs and finally leveraging the data in that to build more advanced diagnostic systems instead of just you know, constant billing entry systems, right? How do we take all of this data and turn it into actionable, both insight and then ultimately true transformation of these systems, right? And so what I would tell people is, yes, it feels bad. There's a lot of bad right now. But I think we are at a transformative point in healthcare, where those who want to take up the mission and run with the baton of, of, you know, that we're lucky to have from generations before who fought all these different fights with all the respect in the world to the clinicians and innovators and leaders who have been fighting this you know, much longer than, than you and I have. But this is a time when you can make a real difference. The inflection point is there. And I am absolutely confident that the next couple of decades are going to bring exciting transformations in healthcare. Uh, and some are going to say, "Robert, it's very naive. Nothing's ever going to change." But you know, we are in the business. You know, you and I show, of telling people who tell us stuff is impossible uh, to you know go shove it and then show them what we can do. And I think that I hope more people, whether you come from the clinical side or the entrepreneurial side, or you're thinking about one of these hybrid careers, um, which I of course would recommend. But boy, is that a lot of school and effort. Um, uh, you know, if that's something you're interested in, go for it. Don't let some of the despair that very logically trickles in, by the way, stop you from from being a part of that bending the curve uh, and, and perhaps for this podcast today, uh, raising the line.
0: Well, that's incredibly motivating and, uh, and well said. I, I agree. I'm trying to find more sources of optimism and I think one of the key pieces of advice I would give people is surround yourself with people who are optimistic. Absolutely, who lean towards optimism, not not irrationally optimistic, but rationally optimistic. And you know, obviously, if if anyone's feeling despair because of healthcare, climate change, pandemics, political divisiveness, you know, reading people like Steven Pinker, um, Naval Ravikant, and um, uh, I mean, even Elon Musk is pretty optimistic about the future in ways that most people are not. Uh, I think is a really helpful thing to do. Uh, anything else, Robert? Before we let you go, I know quite busy with resume.
1: No, no, absolutely. This was a, it's you know always such a delight to to catch up with you, Um And you know, congratulations on all your success and the wonderful success of Osmosis. I remember when it was an app on my phone, and we you know we sending you bug reports directly. And now it's just this wonderful transformative tool for the, the ed- uh, medical education system. So, gosh, I, I applaud you and your team for that. Um, and, and no, I just have thanks and I have thanks to everyone who listened to this. And I hope there's a little piece of this that, that might've resonated with someone. And if you're listening to this also, you know, feel free to reach out. You've got great company ideas. If you know people who are interested in investing, or if you're someone who's thinking about combining these two careers, it's kind of a small world. Um, and we all try to help each other and lift each other up, uh, and we have each other's back. So you can, you can reach out to me. I'm at robert at I'll give you my direct email address. By the
0: and I'll give you uh, everyone, uh, Robert's cell phone number in case they want to reach him too. But I'm, yeah, I'm maybe, just Maybe
1: not that one. Maybe I, <laughs> I, I get like, still get, even in even now as a resident, I still get called, sales calls for pretend.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, Robert, thanks so much again. Really proud of what you've achieved. Um, I'll, I'll vouch for anyone who wants to reach out to Robert via his email address, not cell phone number that he's been extremely helpful to me. I've shared, I've sent a couple of people uh, who are interested in in doing similar things what he's done his way as well so definitely take take advantage of that knowing that he is a resident so be 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 judicious about that outreach but uh again robert thanks for everything you've done uh thanks for raising the line and with that i'm Shivy thank you to our audience for checking out today's show and remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise line we're all in this together take care